It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Uh oh, guess what day it is? Julie. Huh? Julie. Huh? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? <laughs> Anybody? Anybody? Mike, 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 Mike. Huh? What day is it, Mike? Huh? Woohoo! Listen, guess what today is? Listen, guess what today is? It's hump day. Okay! Woohoo! <laughs> it's hump day. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Donaldson Files. This is Tom Donaldson, and tonight it's it's Resistance Wednesday. And now that Joe Biden is officially president, we now will begin officially the Resistance. And don't forget, Larry, Dr. Larry is going to have the Resistance Hour with uh, Dr. The Resistance Hour follows this show with Dr. Larry and Tom. And speaking of Dr. Resistance himself, Dr. Larry is going to be joining me for the next hour. Hey, Dr. Larry, how you doing? Just fine, I guess. <laughs> it's kind of a <laughs> kind of a mixed bag today, huh? Yes. Well, here's the thing. I, first of all, I will introduce myself. I'm Tom Donald. I'm the chairman of America's PAC. I'm the project director for America's Majority Foundation, author of eight great books. None of them yet bestsellers, but they all should be. And you can get them all through either Amazon.com or or your local bookstore, just simply order them out. But again, uh, and Dr. Larry, why don't you kind of tell everybody about yourself? Well, I uh, I spent most of my uh, career as a uh, businessman, international uh, for the most part. Started a college one time, started a couple of uh, schools in the Philippines and uh, other places. Uh, and then also was uh, very uh, involved in uh, the uh, conversion of the federal workforce to uh, the digital uh, management uh, uh, trend that uh, occurred in the 1980s and 90s. Um, And then uh, finally uh, decided that I'd uh, retire, and um, that lasted about a week. Uh, then I got myself involved in uh, writing uh, political columns and got it picked up by the Washington Times, and that put me in the radio. And then, was, first thing you know, I have my own show, and now I uh, share a show with you, Tom. Yeah. All right. Uh, here's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to do two, th- three things. We're going to start off talking about what would fascism look like in the United States. Uh, the second thing is we're going to rank the presidents, and then we're going to try to figure out where, at this point in history, you'll put Barack Obama and Donald Trump 
and how would you rate the two of them side by side? So we're going to have those discussions. And I will say this, as I told uh, you know Dr. Larry off the air, there will be some surprises. There'll be one surprise in the top five for me, or maybe two, you know, after talking to Dr. Larry, and in the bottom five, in the bottom five, in the bottom five. To be honest with you, there's two to me that were self-evident that everybody ranks. Uh, there are those. Uh, But there's always, at least there's a couple that are not on that list that people would always include. And there's a couple who, quite frankly, I'm not sure I put them. I, I One of them I will put on, even though he's probably in many ways probably one of the smartest men ever to be president. Uh, and he got caught in a web, some of his own design. And you have to sit back and say, let's look at the policies and, and kind of examine that policy. Uh, in a way, you know the impact. And the other, and the other gentleman who I put in as my worst president is one where most historians would totally be looking at me with gap, uh, with like open mouths and say, "Are you kidding me?" But I will make the case for that. Uh, and I'm going to make the case. But I'm going to start off with this. Uh, here's the thing, Dr. Larry, to me. You know what is fascism going to look like? In the United States And I find it to be I'm going to use the word Feudalism fascism It it may be A feudalistic fascist society And and what I will tell people is this It's not going to be a bunch of Goose-stepping morons With funny-looking uniforms And mustaches It's going to be Bureaucrats in Brooks Brothers suits Funded by oligarchies Getting a much larger chair and we may still have an official Congress, only in the sense that they will be voting merely to redistribute the wealth for the bureaucrats, and the bureaucrats will be telling you what to do. In effect, what China is today is where we'll, where we'll probably, where fascism will look like, only having a, a, an American face, not a Chinese face to it. Uh, and, and I and, and I kind of feel it's it's a combination. Of George Orwell, 1984, and in, 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 uh, Brave New World, where it's not it's, it's going to be a combination of Big Brother, but Big Brother will have much of a lighter footprint, maybe, than what you have in Orwell's book. And Brave New World, where basically we're all doped up to the point we don't really care. Uh, and. And my fear is very simple. But we, we look at what's happened with the – I mean, there are three events that I think we should, need to be cautious of. What happened with the, oblig, the social media oligarchies, and we had a discussion this last week because one of the problems we run into is you know, we got into a conversation of antitrust. And one of the you – know, John Hinderacker, who's basically uh, – is a, an attorney, a successful – has been a successful attorney. He's now the president of an American for Center – uh, the Center for American Experiment, and he, he made the point. He said, "Look, here's the problem you run into. <coughs> excuse me. When you think of excuse me, when you think of antitrust, you think of money. You think of, let's say, you know, financial interest. Namely, a, a monopoly raises the price beyond the level by destroying all the competition. 
What we're seeing here is something totally different. We're essentially seeing oligarchy essentially running interference for the Democratic Party and the political left, crushing their opponents to keep out ideas and free speech. You know, that's something we're not really used to looking at, where a monopoly can use its power to determine who can actually speak and who can't. In effect, acting on behalf of the government to censor people. And, and I think this is where the fascism will come in, because quite frankly, as I stated, it's going to be a lo- one of those we'll wake up one morning 30, 40 years down the road, and we're going to find out very clearly what happened. You and me will know what happened as we live, but you're going to have a, your, ch- your grandchildren, great-grandchildren, they'll never know what they missed. They'll never know what they missed. Because they would never live in a world where that you and I lived in, and yes, there'll be concentration camps, but somehow it's not going to be Nazi Germany; it'll be China. That's what we'll be looking at: fascism, with a similar to what we're seeing in China today, censorship on the internet. We'd be followed every aspect of our life. I mean, think right now. I mean. I mean, let's be blunt here. I mean, if you go on your phone, you go on your computer, every aspect of your life can be pretty much detailed. Uh, I could always remember a conversation. I took a computer course in 1984, 85, and the instructor went, and one day, you know, we went for like near the end of the, 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 the semester. We went to a, uh, to a, you know, have a couple of beers afterwards. And this guy, he got onto this notion. He said, because in those days, when we look at computers as a great liberator, you know, we can go outside of the censorship, go outside and, you know, communicate with each other. And he said, there'll be a time and place, you'll be able to put a chip in you. This computer will be your master if you don't do what's being told because you'll have a, cap, a cashless society. You'll have the ability, you know, to buy things online. And he said, but you also have the same power that if you don't play ball with the the regime, you're not going to eat. You're not going to be able to do anything. Uh, we look at China today, you have the social credit. People can follow what you're saying. And the censorship we're seeing is basically exactly that. If they don't like what you're saying, they'll shut you down. Imagine if you visit the wrong site. Imagine if you see... Let, get caught listening to a bit, to an old audio tape of the Resistance Hour with Dr. Larry and Tom. You know that. You know suddenly you'll get a a discredit, and maybe down the road you won't be able to get anything to eat. You won't be able to get lose your jobs. The government will have complete control because they'll know every aspect of your life. And he said this, and then he got into the Book of Revelation, the bought and market of the beast. He said. You get that chip in you, you get this computer control in you, this is your mark of the beast. And we all had this look on his face like we all had this kind of peculiar look. And he smiled, you really don't believe me, do you? You really don't see it, do you? He said, but trust me, the potential is there. And that, to me, is what our fascism is going to look like. Uh, What is your thoughts? Before you do... Uh, let's take a quick break here. Uh, 
This is Tom Donaldson here with Dr. Larry here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Donaldson Pop presents talk radio like you've never heard it before on the Bachelor News Radio Network. We go live every Tuesday and Wednesday on this network, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Go to the bachelornews.airtime.pro. We are on the cutting edge and we are ahead of the curve on what is happening while the media tries to catch up. We talk issues from right to left. Once a month, we have Ladies Night, where we talk relationship in the 21st century and nothing is off limits or taboo. Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Yeah, don't forget next Tuesday we're having the ladies night speaking of ladies night led by Coco. I'm simply there as an observer listening to the crazy things that often get said. Uh, so here, and don't forget the Bachelor News Radio Network.com. You can listen to all of our shows anytime, any way you want. Okay, okay, Dr. Larry, I'm going to let you chime in here. Well, <clears throat> First of all, I, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I think that the uh, onset of fascism would be will be gradual, and I think the first step is to restrict the freedom of uh, expression, and I think we're already starting to see that uh, in the uh, uh, social media that uh, is being dominated by the big by big tech. Uh, I think that that <clears throat> that attitude is going to uh, it, 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 that will be uh, they will be trying to expand that. It will get to the point. I mean, what they would like to do is be able to uh, restrict uh, speech to what they consider to be um, they, meaning the far left. What they consider to be uh, the, the, uh, the 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 facts and the appropriate uh, interpretation of uh, of events uh, that they uh, that, that they themselves uh, have uh, engineered, and we've seen that repeatedly in the way that they treated the Trump phenomenon. I mean, they made up a whole mythology about uh, him and about what he was like and. And uh, they had a lot of people believing it, and I think that that they will continue to work that that approach toward the end of uh, making uh, all uh, freedom any speech that is contrary to what they are uh, believing in, or at least recommending uh, uh, that 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 they will that they will try to punish people for that. And to the point, maybe that uh, it could get very pretty serious. Uh, the next step, I think, would be that they will start. They will go after the guns. And the old saying is, uh, "Who controls the government? The uh, control of the government is in the hands of the people that have the guns." Well, in this country, we've had we've been able to maintain the people that have the guns, namely the military. Uh, is a uh, force that is uh, that takes its its orders and its uh, its entire mission from the civilian government. Um, I think that <clears throat> that is a uh, uh, that it, that is something that 
is going to be challenged. Uh, and I think that the uh, idea of trying to uh, disarm the American public uh, is going to get more and more uh, uh, fervent. And, and if it succeeds, um, then the uh, idea of a civil war uh, really starts to uh, be, be in front of us. Uh, I, I think, however, I would say that I think that the major defense that we ultimately have against uh, a fascist uh, regime in the United States is the culture. Our American culture is based upon freedom, individual freedom, freedom of expression, freedom of activity, and and uh, and when if you even people that are not very interested in politics, if you try to uh, if you push them too far, uh, they're just likely to uh, they they start to resent it, and uh, eventually. Uh, you know they they will they will respond, and we know that there are 74 plus million people that voted for uh, Donald Trump this last time, probably more, uh, and uh, they are a massive force. If they uh, if they are pushed too far, uh, I think that uh, we've we've got some real serious possibilities of uh, uh, of armed conflict. Uh, and I don't, but I don't think we're going to get fascism without having that kind of a confrontation. So uh, that's a kind of a uh, splintered uh, response to your question. But well, actually, yeah, but that's it, it. yeah, because there's, uh, yeah, yeah, because you, there's points that you make that I, I think we're both in agreement in this regard that. Uh, it's not going to be something that happens overnight. It's not going to be one of those things where it's there. It's a gradual, and I think it's, and it's also going to be part of that, gra- what I would say, that gradual acceptance of, and maybe that's the point, because one of the most interesting aspects I've seen with, the co- with these lockdowns and this COVID and all this is how many people are willing to accept their loss of her freedoms for a crisis. I mean, we literally have churches being closed and casinos open. And, and you know, the fact that we haven't had as many riots and violence over this is, is, is the fact that we have Americans who are perfectly comfortable with this happening. Uh, well, yeah, but there are a lot of people that are not very comfortable with it. That's true. But I'm going to say there's a whole lot more people. There's a lot. But here's the thing. I can't imagine in the 1990s, 1980s, or the ni- even the 1970s, if this came, if this happened. I mean, think of it this way. The pandemic of 1957 and 1968 were similar in lethality to what we're seeing here today. And somehow or another, can you imagine what would have happened in the 68 and what would have happened in in the 57, if governors said we're going to shut you down for the for this virus, do you think we would have been a little, little more, a little less, a little more resistant 
in those two years versus today? I don't know. It's hard to hard to yeah. put myself back into that into that yeah. uh, that context. I, I guess I I don't know exactly how to respond to that. Well, that's a good, good point. I don't know. I, mean, I just there's a part of me that just would not think it would have happened. I mean, even during the Spanish flu, you know, which was far worse, maybe ten times as worse than it is today. From a virus. I mean, the average age of death was 30. We had, while we had local, you know, issues, you know, nowhere, you know, local, let's say, restrictions, they were nowhere near as severe as this. If anything, the government wanted to keep it open, as open as possible, because also, remember, the Spanish flu happened during the last year, started at the last year of the Civil War. And the government was not about to shut down the economy when you have a war to win. But they even, you know, again, you did not see the kind of restrictions that you see today. Even Never. in Spain, where you basically, yeah. And, and and the thing is, there's had to be a reason. Either a politicians understood yeah, this is not the way to go, this is a, a line too far to cross, or that they knew their voters wouldn't appreciate it. But that's what I'm thinking. And the fact that it hadn't happened to an extent it happened this year. This past year, but indicate to me that there was an element of fear politicians had of their own people. That's just my thoughts. Your thoughts? Yeah, yeah I, I do. I don't think. I don't think that the the politician, the American politician, has ever existed who who honestly thought that they could uh, muzzle the American people and and. And uh, that they, they that they would be able to uh, uh, that they could introduce a a dictatorship that that would be acceptable without some kind of uprising. Uh, I think that the yeah. American the American frontier uh, certainly in the 19th century uh, it spawned people that were extremely individualistic and. Uh, they would never have accepted uh, the kind of dictatorship that uh, that we're talking about, for instance, in China now. And I, I think that's still true, although I think it's not nearly as on the surface as it was in those days. Well, here's yeah, I mean, here's the thing. It's a good point. Because here's the thing I would say when I think of this. I, I think of myself, I said, wait a minute. If you, you make the point is, they basically were afraid to have done that. I mean, we have essentially a whole generation of, of politicians today that don't feel that restrained as they have in the past. I haven't seen. I mean, that's what I find so fascinating to me. Is they, they don't feel what, what Tom? Restraint. They, yeah. they just don't feel as restrained as politicians in the past. It was almost as if in the past politicians would say, well, there's a line I dare not cross. There's a lot of light to do, but there's a line you dare not cross. This generation of politicians have no problems crossing those lines. I mean, you look at Andrew, what I like to call it the granny killer Kuma. I mean, this, I mean, he's gotten to a point where he's basically threatening people with $1,000 fines if you don't do the vaccine in the right order. I mean, 
I, I just can't seriously see. Can anybody imagine that happening 30 or 40 years ago? I, I don't. I don't. Well, yeah, but you, you, can't, you cannot disregard the uh, existence and the fear of the pandemic. I mean, that is what yeah. they use as the basis for all of this uh, uh, in, intrusion yeah. into American freedom. And, and that, that if, if the people had not been so scared of the pandemic, they would never would have put up with it. In fact, now that, yeah. that, that fear is being abated, uh, we find fewer and fewer people, including even uh, Joseph uh, Biden, who are saying uh, that the uh, lockdown is actually uh, working and that it it uh, uh, is uh, a major factor in curtailing the uh, spread of the virus. So um, I, I think that I think that's I think that's really quite uh, you know quite significant. Yeah. Well, I mean. Yeah, you, know, you can say it, there. There are aspects of it because I mean this. This is the reason why I kind of fe- I have a fear that if this, uh, what you mentioned the gradualism of fascism is not going to come overnight. As I say, it's not going to be funny-looking guys, you stepping around. It's going to be basically, uh, it's going to be a gradual loss of freedom. Uh, and you know, I'm kind of maybe a nice way of putting it. It'll be it's like the frog in the water. And then you slowly turn the heat up before the fog realizes it's too late. And maybe that's you know, that's kind of that's why I'm kind of looking at where it's going to look. Well, I think that there, this this whole experience of the uh, lockdown that that has uh, now come into real real question uh, is kind of a wake-up call for a lot of Americans that they now realize that the governors uh, and the state and local uh, uh, governments have a lot more power over them than they thought. And I think that there's a sensitivity now uh, that people are starting to really uh, uh, measure very carefully their uh, freedom uh, from uh, from from their own people that that, that there are actually some many of whom they know, you know, like like the local uh, the mayors and the and the city councils and so on, the county council really. Um, I, I think that there's is more of a sensitivity. Now, we have to make a distinction between the people that are. I mean, there's all kinds of different people, you know, and and. Uh, some some of them are not very uh, aware of. Some of them are very uh, dictatorial, and they're very author. You know, the the, the old uh, uh, authoritarian kind of mentality. They want power at at any cost, and, I, and there is certainly a, a lot of a lot of that going on right now in the people that are trying to punish all of the. Uh, uh, the Trump people, and and they want to keep them away from uh, books and away from uh, jobs and everything else. There is that there is that 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 group of people, but I also think yeah. that there are a lot of 
cooler heads, too, that are much more tuned in to the uh, traditional American uh, concepts of personal freedom. Well, hold on, that thought. This is Tom Donaldson uh, with Dr. Larry here on the Donaldson the Wednesday edition, or as we like to say, Resistance Wednesday. Now that Biden is president, the resistance has formally begun. Here on the Donaldson Files on the Bastion News Radio Network. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for media flu. media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Don't forget to get your flu shots, ladies and gentlemen. And also, join Barry Barnes for Locker Talk on the Bachelor Pad Network as he presents NFL news and evaluates players Fridays at 9 a.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com. Don't forget Bachelor, uh, the Bachelor News Radio Network. Uh, you can get all these great shows and and listen to them anytime, including the the Donaldson Files and the Resistance Hour with Dr. Larry and Tom. Uh, so tune in and stay informed. All right. I I, I think okay. I think we got now. I'm going to go into another subject. Ranking the presidents, looking at the presidents, and then trying to figure out where we would put Trump and Obama. Uh, and I will – I'm going to start with my list, and I'll give my explanation as I do. Uh, number one to me is self-evident, George Washington, uh, the father of our country. I mean, if you – he – and then it's I don't know, Larry, if you ever read the book. George Washington Entrepreneur. Uh, we've had John Burlow on our show on a couple of occasions. The author is a good friend of mine. And it's one of those books where, you know, it's like when you write about somebody like a George Washington, you know, you're always in that position, what can I say that nobody else has already said? And it's not easy in the case of George Washington. But John Burlow did. And he made an interesting point about George Washington, and that is that George Washington was was an entrepreneur. Uh, he he had an iron mine. He was a surveyor. He was a pioneer and a visionary and ahead of the game on agriculture. He was one of the few people in those days understood, you know, about soil conservation and the damage the court that cotton could do to this to the to the land and and talked about planting other ask you know, other things to keep the soil you know rotated and rich i mean these were the things he did he also uh befriended interventors and so he was in some ways a visionary in his own right in addition to being the great general and as a president you know he is the model president uh, uh he is that one president you know, when we think of george washington the first president, you know, he brought stability to a country at its very beginning. He gave an example to those people. This is how the president's supposed to behave. 
this is where the what we need to you know look for in a president. He basically, when he everything he did, he did so for posterity because he knew that there will be people following him. And and King George of Great Britain observed when George Washington went back uh, to Mount Vernon after his second term. He you know he he said this is enough. And we're talking about a man who easily could have won re-election as many times as he wanted. But he chose to go home, and, and even King George noted that's a sign of greatness, that he was willing to give up his power that he easily could have kept and went home. The second per- the person, and we had this conversation off the air, Abraham Lincoln. And, and again, uh, in my view, Lincoln is very simple. He, he basically won a civil war and kept the country together and, and formed the basis of yet a greater country afterwards. Uh, you know, whether, you know, it'd be interesting to see what would happen in the you know, in reconstruction had he been allowed to live, but it's hard not to, you know, somebody saying that one moment of crisis, which he walked into, you know, and easily could have lost. He won. Uh, the number three president is Franklin Roosevelt, uh, and, and and again, looking for him, he's four terms, but his impact goes beyond. You know, he changed the Democratic Party. Uh, he changed the way we looked at government into the welfare state. You can, my own view is his handling of the Great Depression delayed recovery, and there's nothing on that. But he did win a war, and when it was all over, we were a stronger, more powerful nation as a result. And under his vice president and soon-be president, Harry S. Truman, they put the formation of a foreign policy that literally lasted for decades and ended in the defeat of the Soviet Empire. Ronald Reagan, to me, is one of those men that, again, you know, I, you know, I he was the one president that I can always say in my own lifetime that I voted for that is not that I can sit back and say was the great best two votes of my life as a, a citizen. And again, what did he do? He basically he inherited a country that was in Malays in the 1980s. People have to remember the Soviet Empire was on the rise, was on the march. We literally had people saying that it was the wave of the future, that we were in perpetual decline. And I could always remember there was, a, there was an article in Fortune where they had the bulls and the, the bears, where they were literally talking about the great coming depression. I mean, we had groups of people that were talking about the great coming depression of the 1980s. There was a feeling of desperation. And by the time Ronald Reagan left office, America was on the move once again. And within a year afterwards, the Cold War ended in victory for us. So winning a war without firing a shot or starting a nuclear war, an economic prosperity that lasted over two decades, and changing the nature of politics, certainly I would put in number four. Now, here's my surprise for number five. 
He's a man who I think has been totally underestimated. I've read two very, and I would suggest to people to read the following two books. One, Karl Rove, The Election of 1896, Why It Matters. And the second was Robert Murray's book on William McKinley. So when I read those two books, it was like I got a totally different vibe from what I was told in the history. First of all, number one, how many people would even know that William McKinley, when he ran for president in 1896, the political bosses hated him. He was opposed by the political bosses of his day. He was the outsider. And while we have the view of him as a plutocrat defending big business, he also attracted a coalition. For example, winning the nomination, one of the things he did, he went into black communities because those days you know, most blacks were Republicans. And even though many of them were being denied the right to vote or having difficulty voting in the general election, they certainly had a factor in who's going to get nominated Republican president. So he set an alliance with black, with new incoming immigrants, with blue-collar workers, small business, and big business alike. I call it the full dinner plate, you know, America's for everybody. And he had a very diverse coalition that would last for nearly a third of a century. Uh, he, he won a war. You know, people didn't forget the Spanish-American War was one of those very interesting wars. It was a war that lasted essentially 90 days. But the impact of that war is we walked out as a world power. We had colonies in the Philippines. We had uh, Cuba. We had Puerto Rico. We had Guam. I mean, we literally had a world empire thrust upon us. And McKinley was a reluctant warrior. As a man who fought in the Civil War, who saw death first had, he was not anxious to get into war. But once he did it, he won the war and essentially won the peace. And when he died, we were a world power. And many of the things that Theodore Roosevelt got credit for had its seed in the McKinley administration. Had McKinley lived three more years and not been assassinated, my view would have been he would have been the one on Mount Rushmore, not Theodore Roosevelt. Those are my top five. Yours. Well, um, it's a very it's a very difficult uh Comparison, really, because uh, the the drastic difference in situations that the various uh, uh, the various uh, presidents faced. Uh, I think you could you could say, well, you know, what about war presidents, which uh, uh, take the presidents who were actually had had wars in common, uh, and you would look at uh, Washington and. Uh, uh, Monroe and uh, Grant, well Lincoln, and uh, and then probably uh, you'd have to go to Woodrow Wilson and Roosevelt. Uh, to some extent, Eisenhower and uh, and and even Kennedy and uh, Johnson, uh, Nixon. I mean, we we've had a lot of wars, but. Uh, and then the, the other the other approach, I guess, would be which which uh, presidents actually did the most to uh, 
to uh, further the ideals of the American uh, Revolution and the American uh, way of life. And in those cases, you might have to talk about somebody like, uh, uh, well, certainly uh, George Washington, uh, because, and 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 to some extent, you'd have to kind of bleed that over into the uh, Adams and uh, Jefferson, because uh, it wasn't really until John Marshall that we had a. Uh, uh, definitive definition of the uh, Supreme Court without which uh, the whole uh, architecture of the American dream would not have actually been uh, been able to, we would never been able to uh, resolve it so I think that I think that the and that happened that happened during the uh, Jefferson administration um, so um but I guess in well, terms, David, of, you, in, in terms yeah, of those, you, 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 yeah, we could t- – Yeah, I'm going to let you think of that. You know, I have, I'm going to come right back to you here on the Donaldson Files with Dr. Larry. We're talking presidents. We're talking fascism. And we'll be talking Trump and Obama uh, at the tail end of this show. Uh, this is Dr. Larry Fidoa, host of the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network, inviting you to listen live every Wednesday evening from 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time at blogtalkradio.com and the podcast every Monday through Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. I am called the philosopher of current events, an independent, open-minded conservative with my own ideas. If you are interested in advertising or having your own show, email us at labachelor40 at gmail.com. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back to the Donaldson Files here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. And don't forget, we have a website, the bachelornewsradionetwork.com. And if you wanted to comment on this show, and you know, call in and say what you think of what we're saying so far. You can call in 646-929-0130, 646-929-0130. Okay, we're back here with presidents. And all right, uh, you're so do you have a top five? Well, I mean, uh, you've given I... us every criteria you use, but you know, if I'm putting you on the spot for right now. And you can always change your mind later when you're you know, thinking about this a little later, because you know these are like I say, you know these are you know things that can go back and forth on. But right now, if I, somebody said to you right now, Doctor Larry, give me your top five. Well, I guess I would I would say that one of the the one of the primary criteria would be uh, presidents who basically change the course of American history. And uh, working backwards, I would say uh, I would start with Trump. Uh, I would go to Obama. Uh, then I would talk about uh, uh, Reagan, and this is 20th century. Uh, and to some extent, uh, and we certainly would, uh, would would have to talk about uh, Roosevelt. And uh, and then of course. Uh, I, I don't think you. I think you would have to talk about Lincoln uh, because of uh, 
the situation that he was in. So I guess that would be my top five. All right. Now, here's the worst president, the bottom five. And this was tough for me because, I mean, this one, does, I'm going to keep thinking. I'll probably end up changing my mind, you know, back and forth as we move, you know, as I keep rethinking this. All right. First of all, I'm going to say right off the bat, uh, Andrew Johnson. Uh, why why, why he, do you think he was so bad? You know, I tell you, here's the I mean, problem I have with he, he really is a guy that started, you know, he, he really started a whole new direction of American uh, politics. No, I'm not. I'm saying Johnson, not Jackson. Andrew Johnson. A- Andrew the, Jackson. Oh, you said Johnson. I mean, yeah, I'm saying oh, Andrew Johnson. Johnson, the, the guy that Andrew got impeached. Johnson. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and not the impeachment, yeah, okay. because as far as I'm concerned, because like Trump, it was an impeachment without an impeachable offense. He was essentially, in effect, told by Con- yeah. the Senate, you can't fire so-and-so even though he's a cabinet member under your jurisdiction, and he's and he viewed that as unconstitutional, and they impeach him as a result. Well, he got impeached, but he the, didn't uh, get convicted. He didn't get convicted, that's right. But the impeachment itself was a farce in that regard. But the real problem he had is following through on Reconstruction. Uh, following through on Lincoln. And again, it was a tough yeah. act to follow. But if you did every mistake you did, he had, you know, he, he was not very sophisticated in dealing with his opponents. Um, and, and and in the end, you know, you know, basically, you know, he got over, you know, he like I say, he got pretty much overwhelmed on it. But he just, you know, it was that aspect. Now, the other person, uh, it'd be James Buchanan for his incompetency in dealing with the Civil War, the advent of the Civil War. Uh, then there are three people who, quite frankly, yeah, you could, they all were very bright people. In the case of Herbert Hoover, he was the wrong man at the wrong time, a very bright man, a very good man. Uh during World War One, and even you know, he basically led the relief in Belgium. He was, you know, he was a you know, he was an engineer, a businessman. Uh, and then people don't realize, you know, he was actually a progressive Republican. He was on the liberal side of the Republican Party in the 1920s. And and part of his weakness was he was an engineer. He thought. Like an engineer, in the sense that, you know, if you do A, B, and C, D is going to happen. But he never took the economic or political calculations in there. It was like people don't necessarily go one plus two equal four, or go three is sometimes equal four. When you deal with human, you know, human beings and economics and human beings in general, and basically, if anybody was to do everything a hundred percent wrong during a recession. He did. He thought he could convince businesses to keep prices and wages up high when you in an economic downturn. That failed. He raised taxes. That failed. He raised. He basically started raised government spending, budget deficit. That failed. Uh, he had, we already had high tariffs to begin with. He took tariffs to even a higher level. This you know, but that failed. 
in other words, everything he touched, as they say in the business, turned to crap. A bright man, wrong man at the wrong time. Richard Nixon is another of those men who, and again, you have to look at his policy. I'm sitting there thinking, I, I had to have a little mixture on this one. But I've always viewed Nixon policies of real politics of trying to play off the Chinese and the Russians. In some ways, it was brilliant done. You know, bringing the Chinese as a counterweight to the Russians. And they essentially split. There was a brilliance to that foreign policy. Uh, but if you look at his domestic policy, he essentially took the, the, the great society and took it to another level. Uh, Watergate was one of those things of hubris, much in the same way, you know, when I talk about Trump, there was a hubris side to him where he basically crossed lines that in the end undermined everything he was attempting to do. You know, had he been, you know, had he had a chance to fill the second term, he was going to basically declare war on the bureaucracy to try to rein in its power. Uh, He tried to set up a more elaborate post-war Vietnam War foreign policy that ended up failing because of Watergate. In, in a way, Watergate undermined the strategy he had for a second amendment or a second term. My worst president, I'm going to put Woodrow Wilson. Uh, and here's the aspect of Wood- Wilson. Historians will say he was a progressive with some with some accomplishment on the domestic scene. There's no doubt that America under his through to nineteen eighteen basically prospered. Part of it were World War One, where basically we were the arsenal of democracy and we were making hands money over fist. He won the war and he lost the peace which would have a much more detrimental effect down the road. Uh, he was a racist. Uh, he was the most racist president from night, you know, in the 20th century and going into the 21st century. And the real aspect is he was also poor with, during World War II. He basically took government control to a level not seen in the United States before. You know, we had tax rates go up to 90%. We had you know, government boards dictating every aspect of our life during the World War I to control every aspect of our lives to get you know, to win the war. Uh, his civil liberty, you know, Josh, uh, Jonah Goldberg in his book, Liberal Fascists, observed, he put more political prisoners in jail than Mussolini did his first four or five years in power. And one of those... You know, and he, he was incapacitated by a stroke. His wife, his wife and a few of his close, pretty much ran the country. And we basically came close to having the Depression of the 1920s. The only reason why we did is Warren G. Hardy hired some, you know, basically had some very bright people in his cabinet who simply told him how to get out of it. And Warren G. Harding set in motion the prosperities of the 20s and prevented the Great Depression of the 1920s that ended up coming in 1930s. 
So, in fact, Wilson was saved for one aspect, namely the guy responsible for a depression. Because what people don't realize, the 1919 to 1920 recession was probably the worst in history until the Great Depression, and certainly uh, from an unemployment number matched very closely to what we saw the first couple of months of the Great Lockdown. And he's a man, if you look at his college professorship, hated the Constitution, wanted to change it radically. And he put in motion where we're living with today an entire movement that basically challenges the Constitution as uh, the Constitution as it's written, or as we say, the living Constitution as we decided to be for the time being. What are your thoughts? So we're <clears throat> we're talking about the worst uh, the, the prison. Well, yeah. <clears throat> I think that uh, I think if if we're getting beyond the if we're going back into the 19th century, uh, we've we've got a lot. <laughs> we've got a lot of a lot of yeah. choices, uh, but. Uh, in, in terms of uh, in terms of the current, well, that that that's a difficult that's a difficult question again for the same reason because of all the different types of situations that were. Uh, I, I I think I'd have to agree with with your uh, talk about uh, Johnson. I mean, he was he was basically a uh, Southerner who was lost uh, who lost who was involved in the in the in the public he he was he was he was in office in the uh in the uh union states even though he was really a southerner and his people lost the he just didn't know what to do and um he tried to protect his people by by uh Having a problem with reconstruction, and of course, then they he got roundly uh, chastised for that. So I, I guess I guess that would certainly have to be one of them. Um, I think I think in the 20th century, in my lifetime, Jimmy Carter is pretty uh, pretty. He certainly gets the the, the ribbon for the uh, the most uh, ineffective president in my lifetime. I think. Um, well, I get yeah. Here's the thing I'm going to say because I'm going to throw that because I do want to get very briefly because we got about five minutes left. Yeah, and I want to talk very briefly on Trump and Obama because I've always found from Carter, you know, to me Barack Obama is a mediocre president. I'm not going to put him in the bottom five, but he was a mediocre president for the following reason. Well, okay, the economy, he had a weak recovery, but at least you can say a recovery. But his foreign policy was disastrous. And will probably was a disastrous side. I mean, the Middle East, the essential oil ram become the major power. Uh, Russia was on the march. Uh, China was on the march. You, we were a less safe place after he left than we were before he left. The second aspect to me goes right back to civil liberties. And, and it's often, I mean, name me a president who managed to get away with the following. Seeking the IRS on a political opponent. He did that. Spying on media, he did that. He's, his CIA director got caught spying on Spanish staffers. 
and kept his job. And in the case of uh, the Russian collusion hoax, he knew it was a hoax. And this was to me is the unforgivable sin. He knew it was a hoax, both he and Biden. And yet all they had to do after the election was say, we have no evidence. This occurred. We're going to move on. Had he done that, we would have been spared the last four years of divisiveness as a result. You know, and that, to me, is the unforgivable sin in my book. He had the power to do it. He didn't do it. In the case of Trump, Trump has a lot of accomplishments. But like Richard Nixon, there was a personality side to me that hurt the end result. And, and I guess maybe the question is, you know, was the personal side enough to knock him down and overlook the accomplishments that he did have? Because in my view, he had more accomplishments than Obama. But if you look at the last month of his administration, and I'm, you know, you know, what people remember that or remember the fact that he had accomplishments or would they remember the treats and the personal side of him that oftentimes undermine, could undermine what he was attempting to do. I would put both of them a little bit under the second half as opposed to the top half of presidency. I think we have to see more what happens, for example, if Joe Biden proves to be a disastrous president following on the policies of Obama. That would stick Obama even further down the list. Uh, we'll see what happens to the Republican Party you know, in the next four years. Uh, but at this point, I would say that the person, you know, to me, there's that personal aspect of Trump that oftentimes got in the way of the accomplishments that he did do. Your thoughts? Well, I think that latter point that you made is, is real. Um, I think that uh, the <clears throat> problem of um, or the contribution, if you will, of uh, Obama is detrimental to the total picture of uh, uh, the United States as we have come to know it and, and as we want it to be, mainly because of the division that he uh, esp- that he espoused uh, indirectly and directly, uh, and and for that reason, I I, uh, I agree that his presidency uh, turned out to be a net negative. Uh, it was also the beginning of this fascist. Uh, Move that uh, we're now seeing uh, uh, yeah. as a major as a major con- a problem that we may be facing still. So, uh, trying to weaponize the IRS and uh, and and uh, FBI and uh, Justice Department and so on. So, I guess I guess I would have to agree with that part. Um, yeah. As far as in the, and I do agree that, but as far as Trump is concerned. I have to distinguish between the man and the prop policies and the Trump, what I call the Trump doctrine. I think uh, it was extremely very, very useful and, and really uh, deserves to be part of our political yeah. heritage. Absolutely. I, mean, like I, said, I think you make a very good point because like I say, can we do that? But like I say, his accomplishments 
were significant uh, in what he did. And to me, maybe the most important accomplishment will be the coalition that he built that could, if the Republican Party follows up on that coalition, could make them a dominant force in 2022 and beyond. We will see. Uh, this is Tom Donaldson with uh, my good good friend, Dr. Larry Federer. We're going to say good night here, here from the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. And uh, 
as soon as uh, Matt, uh, as soon as you get uh, on board here, we'll uh, we'd like to have you uh, give us your thoughts. And uh, I'm here, Larry. Oh, you are. Well, yeah. welcome. <laughs> welcome to you guys. <laughs> uh, we're just yeah. sort of wondering what uh, what do you think about the uh, the new administration in 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 relation to the. Uh, uh, to the minority of people that uh, did vote for uh, for President Trump. Well, um, I think uh, one of the advantages of having Biden uh, right now as president is his years of experience in Washington with the Senate, and um, also having been vice president for eight years his understanding of the executive branch. Now, what uh, I think hurt Trump is he had never had any elected office experience. Um, If you go back to Reagan, he was a governor, and, you know, he knew how to run a state, that type of stuff. Uh, Nixon also had held elected office. Uh, The Bushes uh, had experience. But, but Trump didn't, and Trump came in with this kind of like CEO mentality, and that would have been okay. But he had a, he had a uh, he never had a board, <laughs> yeah. a board of directors, and you know you need you need a board of directors sometimes to you know tell you oh well I won't do this particular thing or I'd be careful about doing that that type of thing. But he's kind of always run his own show. And it may have worked for him in his private life, but it's difficult when you come into a government, especially the central government of the United States, as large as it is, and you don't really, I guess, trust <laughs> your own political party in Congress. you got to work with those guys uh, if you want to have your agenda through. Otherwise, you work by executive order, and you can get some stuff done with that. But you, if you want big ideas and big changes, you've got to have legislation, and you got to get it through. So in that situation, I think um, he was in trouble from the start. But um, with Biden, he has some ideas that go all the way back to the Kennedys. And uh, unfinished business, it's called. And he'd like to see uh, some of this stuff get done. So I think out of the gate, although he's run into this pandemic thing, he's going to have to address that immediately, make sure the vaccines are distributed quickly and properly uh, throughout the 50 states and the territories and you know, the District of Columbia. He's going to have to deal with the economic recovery and bring the economy back online. And in addition, add his own program, if he can get that all through. And included in that program is this infrastructure thing that they've all been trying to do forever. But it should create jobs if they can do it properly. And, um, you know, you've got to have the money for it. So for the infrastructure piece, you're going to have to figure out how to pay for it. So 
their ideas, of course, of the gas tax. I don't think they want to go that route because of rural America relying so much on their automobile. They don't want to deal with the gas tax. So I think they're going to look to take out a loan at a low interest rate and pay it back, uh, similar to some of those programs in the 70s for bailout of Penn Central Railroad and the New York Loan Guarantee and that kind of stuff, although the interest rates were quite a bit higher back then. But they did get paid off, especially the New York was, I believe, a 15, 20-year loan for New York City and the state, and they um, paid it off in seven years. So, so yeah, <laughs> these things can get done. And then the other, you know, my priority besides the um, the vaccine and the, and the uh, economic recovery is going to be, um, you know, uh, climate change is on that list. Um, national and domestic security issues are on that list. Uh, also, you know, uh, fixing the Affordable Care Act is on the list. Um, and, uh, you know, immigration, you know, that's on there, either through executive order changes. Uh, the tariff thing will probably be looked at. Um, I think he's going to keep some of these tariffs, though, which is interesting, and try to... Um, figure out how that is going to deal with the economy. And then, um, you know, he's going to have to look at, and Larry, this is something you kind of had an interest in the past, is this whole social media thing. And there's a program out on Netflix. I saw it last night called Social Media Dilemma. And I said, okay, now what's this going to be about? And Lord knows they had a guy that it was like one of the top people for um, Facebook and then um, Twitter. And he's kind of has his own man show on the road. And he said, the thing that they did not put into uh, the algorithms for all these companies that determine uh, usage and what people like and don't like. And, and then the advertisers can, that's how they make their money. Then they get the advertisers to buy into all of their computer knowledge. And they get, you know, they know exactly how to target everybody because they know exactly what their, uh, uh, you might call it weak points are, and they can, they can take advantage of that. So hold that, hold that thought for a second, Matt. And you're listening to the doctor at the, uh, resistance hour, with uh, Dr. Larry and Tom Donaldson on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Tune in to You and the Law with Chief Virgil Green and Chief Keith Humphrey. The show focuses on law enforcement and their relationship with the black community while letting you know your legal rights as a citizen when confronted by the police. Listen live every Tuesday night from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com and the podcast every Monday through Sunday at 4 a.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. 
never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. You're listening to the Resistance Hour on the Bachelor News Radio Network. And uh, we're talking to uh, Matt Carey tonight. Uh, And Matt, uh, carry on. You were talking about the priorities of the uh, new administration. And I guess... uh, I guess one of a one of the questions is where does labor stand on, on all of these uh, uh, fields? I mean, are they? Is there? I haven't heard anything about labor lately, <laughs> so I'm sort of well, wondering la- what's labor, going on. Labor is behind. Labor is behind the infrastructure program 100 percent. Yeah. And so so is the vet- so are the veterans where they see an opportunity here for jobs, uh, those that are returning and, and uh, don't necessarily want a white-collar job, that they want to be able to use their hands or whatever to uh, make a living and um, possibly join a union where they would get benefits, health care, et cetera. So that's, that's a big priority there. Uh, they're also they're interested in this thing we spoke about last time, that this robot stuff you know how do, how do we play in that uh, playground and uh what's it mean for jobs um health care unions you know um, see an opportunity for more jobs in in the health care arena you know especially with amending the affordable care act and also the possibility of this virus thing leading to other other situations. Um, so, you know, they see, they have, they have an agenda going education. They see a, an opportunity there perhaps for, uh, you know, teachers to, uh, uh, become employed and join those labor unions. Um, a lot of the universities are starting a, um, program to bring back nursing, studies and some paramedical stuff and whatever and labor sees an opportunity there uh, to um, cover more people if they can through particular unions that deal in that area the nurses union being one of them where so, where do they where would they stand relative to the um, uh, fossil fuel phenomenon? I mean, we're now, America is finally uh, energy independent, and yet yes. we're hearing a lot about uh, the idea that they want to get rid of the very energy that we're talking about. So wh- where where, well, where do you think that's going to go? I would well, think labor, labor would be in th- favor. Labor uh, obviously doesn't want to get rid of all the fossil fuel automobiles, but they see an opportunity with this electric car uh, for employment uh, in the auto industry and of course the Tesla thing so they see possibility there for jobs and they also 
um, you know, they're looking at um, solar and the other stuff to see where jobs would become available in these alternative energy sources. That would include them under under that umbrella, basically. Yeah. And Matt, yeah, yeah, this is Tom Donaldson. I've got to, first of all, before we go any further, can you tell people something about yourself? Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, thanks for asking. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I've been in Washington 50 years. Uh, I actually worked on the Hill for three years for, as the legislative director to the New York Congressman James Hastings, who was a Rockefeller Republican out of New York State. And uh, but he served on some pretty powerful committees, interstate and foreign commerce, and he served on the subcommittee on health and environment. So he was involved with all the legislation that came out during that period, the clean air, solid waste management, water, uh, pollution control, uh, of course, uh, HMOs, nurse training, and uh, the Center for Disease Control and all that. So it gave me an opportunity to be right on the front line with the committees and whatever on legislation. And then uh, I went over to the U.S. Conference of Mayors and uh, represented uh, six major cities around the country in their, what they at that time was called Man in Washington program. But it was a mayor could actually have their own person in D.C. to get them uh, federal grants and pass legislation that affected uh, their cities. So I had Buffalo, New York, and Riverside, California, Sunnyvale. California, Bayamon, Puerto Rico, and um, Kenner, Louisiana, the airport city outside of New Orleans, Richmond, Richmond, Washington on the Columbia River. And then um, got to know uh, some chairman of the committees on the Hill, and one was uh, Hugh Carey in Ways and Means, and uh, uh, he uh, ran for uh, governor, and he asked me to uh, uh, run his state office Mm -hmm. in Washington. And then I went uh, to graduate school at American University, and then I also uh, was a lobbyist for the uh, American Consulting Engineers Council a Trade Association, and it had 4,200 engineering firms, of which um, 90 were the largest in the world. And then so, um, so, yeah, I joined a consulting so firm, and then I yeah. started my own company hmm. in 86. Yeah, okay. So basically, you and Dr. Larry got a resume so long that they're the equivalent of War and Peace. It's long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that just is good. We've okay. been a lot. We've been around a long time. Yeah. Well, let me ask. You yeah, live this no, long. Let me, this, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> let me ask. Yeah. Let me ask a question of you. Uh, go back to the union side equation. Because, uh, okay. Because I've always, to me, I've always thought that. Between the public and private sector union in this regard is that in concern the fact that today the majority or close to at least half of union members are public sector. But, you, uh, but I look at it as two separate units, and here's what I'm talking about. You look at the private sector union, two things. Number one, many of them are blue collar. Uh, it's not necessarily yes. white collar per se, more blue collar. Mm-hmm. And they're not immune to the marketplace. 
So let's say if GM goes down, they go down with the chip. Uh, private oh, yeah. public sector unions, are, many of them are much higher percentage white collars. And you got the also aspect is okay, governments. You know, it's like especially in the federal in the federal side of the equation, you just print more money or tax more people, and so there is mm-hmm. you don't have the same incentive. And often and and oftentimes the policies may impact the private sector union. So my question I'm going to throw back to you is this: Is there a conflict between, let's say, a private sector union, public sector union? How do you see that? play down in the past, when you see that play down in the future, when you're looking at essentially white collar versus blue collar? Well, uh, it's an interesting question because I think, again, we if you go back to uh, yeah. the success of social media in the use of um, computers, etc., you, you begin to have less and less people that you need uh, to perform particular function you do create jobs in that mm-hmm. kind of arena um, and then if you go to a use of robots for various things then you know yeah. that becomes a challenge and my, my deep concern right now about labor um, kind of goes beyond um, just the, the conflict there it, it's what what is going to happen like really what is going to happen to the world if we don't really take a serious look on where we're going with um, the social media dilemma stuff because more and more countries, the companies are growing, small companies that employ less people, but they're able to uh, get around that with the technology that that they've developed and uh, obviously making great amount of great amount of money, but also uh, the stock market situation for them hmm. is growing versus our traditional yeah, okay. companies. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me follow up on that because, uh, you know, one of the most interesting people I've always found is Joe Cockton. You know, he's a, was a registered Democrat for years mm-hmm. and, and kind of a blue, he's been an advocate of blue collar workers and, 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 and he's brought these, this, you know, to his, you know, he's talked about this. And here's the question I'm going to throw back. One, I think it was one, he once made the observation. He said, I mean, you got trillion-dollar companies, in, like, for example, in Facebook. Mm-hmm. But yet the number of people they employ is about one-tenth, let's say, of the auto industry uh, or yeah. one-tenth of the fossil fuel industry. And you're essentially got these oligarchies, and that's how he views them, exhibiting far more control. And many of their workers are white-collar per se, but they're also – Located in a high price area where, let's say, $100,000 like San Francisco is like you know, $30,000 in Iowa. <laughs> and, and, and the question is, how does that play into the union side of the equation? Because these are guys who are not necessarily providing the same jobs and opportunities that, let's say, the auto industry did years ago. Yeah, that's they, true. Where do we go from there? From your perspective, where do we go from there? Well, I think to keep the the blue collar thing rolling, you know, and it depends. Here's a here's the thing: if you get into a really large infrastructure program, which kind of centers around yeah. the automobile per se, 
with bridges and highways, secondary roads, that type of, although you also have water and sewer uh, rebuild in, in that concept. Um, then you run into, how, did, how does then, okay, say you want to redo the railroad lines, you know, they're, they're having issues and with track and all this. See, you stay. Do you stay in the world of the regular trains with the way they function and the rail bed that they use, or are you now in a whole new world in the 21st century where you have what's called a maglev train, uh, which is a, sort of a monorail? Uh, it can be either be underground or above, but it 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 can get from <laughs> D.C. to Baltimore in 15 minutes. It can go to New York City in one hour. It can travel at 300 miles an hour. And you can put a coffee cup on your little table and you don't even see it kind of shake. Um, you know, who? How, do, how does labor tie into that kind of thing, which also has computer technology rather than, you know, using a normal... Uh, engineer, train engineer. Um, yeah. okay. These are so, all things. I mean, the answer, the yeah. answer is that they have to be trained to uh, work the computers. Yeah. Isn't that the answer? That's one of the answers. You need to have that that type of person with that type of mind uh, to do that job. And then you also still need others that that can build that one rail and and that can you know deal with the train cars that, that are on those tracks. Um, one of the groups that's looking at this, and you might want to take a look at their website, is a labor union called SMART. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but um, no. Sheet Metal Air Rail Transportation Union. Okay, can, and, you, can you hold that thought for a second, Matt? We're, uh, yeah. On the Dr. Larry, we're on the Resistance Hour uh, on the Bachelor's Radio Network. Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for media flu. media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. You're listening to the Resistance Hour with Dr. Larry and Tom Donaldson, and we're talking to Matt uh, Carey tonight. And uh, go ahead with your uh, – you were talking about the sheet metal and, and uh, various um, – oh, yeah, can you pick up your, your train of thought there? Yeah. They're trying to uh, – they're trying to deal with these issues at the moment, you know, especially the – 
traditional trains and whatever versus this maglev concept, which is not just new for the United States. It's been it's going on yeah. in China and Shanghai. Yeah, and that's yeah. So I think um, there's still going to be labor that, that is uh, not um, white-collar related. It's, it's going to be in, if it ever comes back, the hospitality industry um, with the folks that work there in the hotels, uh, restaurants, and catering and, and that type of job. But they're going to be wanting to make more than the, you know, the average wage uh, down the road here. So that, that's got to be looked at in terms of where do we get our labor supply for those kind of jobs. Now, if, if you try to go to the normal U.S. worker, you know, do they want to do that kind of work? Or do they want something a little bit more challenging and, and will pay them more with better benefits? Or do they, do we then, you know, have to start getting our labor from other uh, countries or whatever to meet that demand? Otherwise, we've got a real problem in the hospitality industry. Um, okay, let me, yeah, I, can I, yeah, can I pause? Yeah, there's one thing I want to kind of pause. We talk about education. Uh, I have the last one we had on the show, John Hinderacker, who runs the Center for American Experiment. And they've been, you know, it's a free market, but they've been doing a pretty fascinating, uh, what they call in the state of Minnesota, where they're are looking at how do we create, you know, what is the job market for people without college degrees? And they found, you know, right. they've been looking at and, and looking at the theory, looking at things and saying there's a ton of jobs out there where, quite frankly, you don't need a college degree. And they're well paid. An example in uh, Minnesota, you got the mining industry. Right. That, uh, which is you know, one of their studies, the average income would be ninety-seven, ninety-eight thousand dollars. And the, and, and mm-hmm. here's the, again, and here's the point I'm going to throw back to you, and it goes back to the the pro, you know, you know, I guess political alliances when you have political alliances between unions and the type of unions within a political movement, is that their biggest, you know, what they noticed in Minnesota is the biggest obstacles are the environmentalists keeping mm-hmm. more these mines from actually opening up. And you got blue collar workers, union guys who basically they're going to make a hundred thousand dollars the more of these jobs are created. You know, how does that coming into the Biden administration, how does that work itself out? Because you basically got two people within the same coalition fighting each other. Yeah, that's going to you see what I mean? A negotiation of some sort, um, starting, you know, with with hopefully some kind of a summit or meeting uh, where they sit down at the table and try to work these things out. Uh, personally, I think the coal industry for that kind of mining is in deep trouble. It's probably, yeah, coming close to an end. Uh, but this other mining, are you talking about? Uh, Natural gas. Yes. Are you talking about that type of well, thing? Natural gas. It's copper. It's like the natural gas, but they got rare earth, copper, iron. Uh, I mean, oh, these sure. are the, right. I mean, we're talking steel. We're talking the various minerals that you need for your computer technology because they're integral parts of that computer technology. That's the mining oh, we're talking absolutely. about here in Minnesota. Yeah. In Minnesota. Yeah. And it's yeah. You know, is and they're 
Well, and a lot of the mines, some of the resources of we're this. mining are, yeah, they're being either mined in China or they're being mined in the Congo. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, so, that 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 comes down to you know, do we want it our our stuff mined in the U.S. or do we want to rely on other countries uh, like Chile and some other places with copper and uh, things along that line. Um, so that would have to be a negotiation, I would think. And also, I would think that our own labor unions would want to keep that in the United States yeah. without importing it. Um, yeah. At least that's the rumors yeah. I've been hearing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I don't yeah. know any plans well, at the a- moment to deal with this. Yeah, because these are kind of interesting things. Because it's, I mean, I look at both political parties, and you know, basically looking at a crossroads for each other. Uh, you know, the Republican Party is no longer the party, necessarily the work, you know, the Wall Street as much as it is a Main Street, and we're looking at within the the Democratic coalition. You got this, as, you know, as I'm trying to point out here. A coalition between the white collar unions versus the blue collar unions, many of whom are private sector, and it goes back to what you're talking about on manufacturing automobiles. You know, that we yeah. uh, there's a big controversy in Georgia right now, where uh, they're you know key can we you know trying to expand upon you know there's a battle expanded upon the production of an electric car manufacturer, and there's like different competition. Uh, and basically what it is, it's a Korean company coming into Georgia manufacturing it. And there's some controversy within the coalition. Do we do it? Do we not do it? And there was an interesting article I caught on it today. You know, that's an example of what I'm seeing. It'd be kind of fascinating you know, to hear from your point of view, you know, you know, how does this all get worked out? Or do we see different coalition breaking up and reforming into other coalitions? Yeah, I think the latter could happen for sure. And I also think now with a, a global economy going on and, and you know, the technologies that are coming up in other countries, um, let's just take something as simple as a pipe, whether it's copper, iron, or uh, plastic. Um, the stuff that we manufacture it's not totally this way, but there's almost a design obsolescence in some of the things that we manufacture where they have to be replaced in a uh, eight, 10 year period, something along that line. The Koreans, the South Koreans are coming up with technology where the warranty or the guarantee is 25 years uh, before you would have to replace it or adjust it. And, um, it um, it does several things. It um, meets our environmental standards on uh, preventing bacteria from getting in uh, to the pipes and, and into your home through your regular water. And it also does pipe protection. In other words, if you've got biofilm or anything built up on a copper pipe or even a plastic pipe, you would... Uh, be able to cleanse it uh, on an ongoing basis, and so it wouldn't it wouldn't result in your pipe cracking or breaking, uh, which 
can go on in some of these places where hmm. the pipes haven't been repaired in a long time. So we're competing against, you know, these foreign um, technologies and their their uh, product creation. And they're, you know, they're aggressive with their marketing plans. So we have to be able to build our own stuff, be creative with that to compete against these people, or we're going to have a real problem. Um, basically, your, your plumber who, who relies on the pipes breaking down a little bit, to, you know, for business purposes, uh, could find themselves out of job. Uh, with these new technologies that are penetrating our marketplace, and they do work, mm-hmm. so um, that that's an issue there with uh, yeah. with late. Okay, right there. Okay, let me ask. Yeah, let me throw, let me throw it out on policy, and I kind of want to get your opinion because this is something that was discussed in the Trump years, you know, near the end, and and I'd be kind of curious because one of the ideas they came up with, okay. Uh, Basically, in effect, telling American workers, I mean, American manufacturers, hey, look, if you want a, a lower tax, corporate tax rate, you got to manufacture in the U.S. And I think what was Larry Kudlow, his position was, yeah, anybody who brings business back to the U.S., we're going to give, we're going to cut your corporate tax rates in half to encourage that. What would be your thoughts on, on something like that? Um. Yeah, I think if it, you know if it's coming back to the United States, um, they should they should get a break on on what they're doing um, to to keep the jobs in the U.S. Uh, we would want something put together through our tax code, I would imagine. Um, and you know the reason they left us <laughs> was you know for cheaper labor in a lot of places. So. Um, if they come back, you have to figure out, you know, how we're going to deal with that side of the ledger in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, what our our labor people make versus uh, what what's yeah. uh, available yeah. overseas, basically. Yeah. So. But it seems like should be like there. Trump was very um, positive on all this this kind of <clears throat> thing. Uh, you know, returning uh, the uh, supply chain to the United States and uh, reopening uh, American manufacturing and so on. Uh, and and in in doing that, he got the uh, he got the support of a lot of uh, people in the uh, in the labor movement. Uh, mm-hmm. And yet, your guys. <clears throat> I shouldn't say your guys, but uh, the uh, de- Democrats don't seem to be uh, as, as oriented in that direction as uh, as Mr. Trump was. It seems like well, they're a lot more interested in uh, you know the, the the traditional sort of uh, arrangements with uh, uh, imports and and uh, and and so on. Is that true or false? It's in between. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, uh, the Democrats have always, uh, not so much the unions per se, but the, the individual 
Democratic voters always looked at the tax code, I think, and how it related to them. And I think when uh, President Trump uh, passed the, his tax bill, uh, they didn't see that as something that was hitting them in the middle class. Uh, it was something that was more geared to um, the private sector uh, companies and entrepreneurs, et cetera, so that you know their tax responsibility would be lowered versus uh, the middle American, middle class American um, receiving any benefit from that kind of a code. And I think that's where yeah. Mr. Biden's going to be looking at adjusting the tax code initially here uh, to people that make under $400,000, period. And um, yeah. that, could, that could have an impact overall on, on the Trump tax package in terms of the corporate world. But um, I think they're going to be looking at that, however, to see where it's been successful and uh, mm-hmm. make the adjustments that way. Kind of, yeah. Well, we're going to but step here. aside here for a second. Uh, you're listening to the doctor. You're listening to the Re- Resistance Hour on the Bachelor News Radio Network. If you want real discussions on politics, social issues, racial issues, and other topics, then tune into the Bachelor News Radio Show. Listen live every Monday and Thursday from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern at BlogTalkRadio.com. And if you miss the show, you can listen every Monday through Saturday at 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern and every Sunday at 5 a.m. and 3 p.m. at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. Listen and be informed. Greetings and great day, everyone. I am Elder Janelle Strickland, host of the Life Cafe radio broadcast from Maximizing Life Family Worship Center. I invite you to tune in every Saturday from 5 to 6 p.m. Tune in, maximize your life with the Word of God, and be blessed. Only on the Bachelor News Radio Network. You're listening to the uh, Bachelor News Radio Network, and we're talking to... uh, we're talking about the uh, new president and the new uh, administration that's coming into uh, Washington as of today. Uh, and our guest is Matt Carey, and we are uh, very happy to have you, Matt. We hope we're not uh, putting you too much on the spot here. No, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> You're used to it, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, let me let me throw a question back to you because uh, I want to again throw this out to you as an idea, and I want your opinion on it and give you uh, thoughts. Here. Uh, I tend to be a, well, I'm not all that enthusiastic per se on raising the marginal tax rates at the top or the corporate side, but I I I had a couple of free market economists, and, I, and here's the question I asked them. I said, look, here's the deal: if you lower the Social Security tax by one percent, but Eliminate the cap altogether. What would be, be how much money are we going to raise overall? 
And they basically came back and said a, a minimal – they said we can raise as minimal as $90 billion additional revenues per year. And the two things that caught me – and the reason I had to do that, because on one side of the equation, you basically – you know, once you eliminate the cap, the rich will be paying a lot more taxes to support Social Security and a lot more tax along those ways. And number two, it does represent a – tax cut for the middle class because that's, you know, anybody under 200000 the number one tax they pay is Social Security. Uh, is that an idea that labor or yourself could get behind or think about? I think uh, at this point we think about, I don't know at, at this point whether they would get behind it. We're, we're still dealing in this country with an older generation yeah. that yeah. really relies on social security to even survive. And um, it would probably be my mother, your mother, etc. And uh, yeah, uh, you know what I'm saying? It, it, well, yeah, now the it's, younger it's, generation it's probably, you know, they yeah. may not want to have social security. I was not even sure where they're going to go with all this. Um, what the point I was going to make here is that you raise, you still are going to be able to raise revenue. It's not like you're cutting revenues, you're just raising them. And when you eliminate the cap, uh, the rich yeah. will pay a higher percentage of what they're now doing. Uh, right. In a way, it doesn't raise the marginal tax rate per se. What it uh, uh on one side of the equation, and the other side is a, is a one economist says it's a tax you can't avoid. I mean, that's essentially you, you know, it's it's an you know, it's an unavoidable tax. You 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 got the income, you pay it. That's it. Uh, so right. it's got all the best of the world, and it's the least damaging from that prospect. That's what I said. In other words, you're not going to lower revenues. You're going to increase right. the revenues overall. And because that's always the biggest concern people have. Are we going, you know, you know, we still, want, you know, you don't want to lower the revenues for Social Security. You want to rate, you know, you want to make sure there's enough in the pocket for the next generation. Well, that's it. And you got to make sure that Congress won't go in yeah. and rate it. Um, you got to put it in a lockbox or something because um, uh, it got damaged before when when that was allowed. Um, that's probably why we're running out of money. Um, sometimes Congress will go after funds yeah. where, you know, they should ask us first, I think, as citizens uh, before they make that move. But uh, it's not always the case. So, yeah, I, I mean, I really think, you know, it, it's something that could be looked at and hopefully yeah. – made better or, or, you know, unfortunately it seems like a lot of the young people, um, and I guess we were all in that boat at one time, don't think enough about their savings of the future. Yeah. They tend to live um, day to day or week to week and, and they think they're not vulnerable to a lot of problems like a pandemic and things along that line. So um, it does, you know, it should should be modernized for the 21st century, and you know, find out what people 
are doing with their money and where they want to go yeah. with it. Yeah. They have to be mature yeah. about it, I think. Yeah. Matt, I'm gonna change I wanna change the subject here for a minute. Um I'm very curious about the uh, the uh genealogy I guess of the uh of the American labor movement. It seems to me that most of the leadership are from that uh, they're kind of very similar in in perspective and in uh, world view to their fathers uh, who, who were uh, uh, building the uh, labor movement in the in the 1960s and 70s and uh, I'm just wondering about the young is there a is there a coming generation of new leadership in in the labor movement because we sure don't see very much of it uh i think in certain sectors um and uh but i think also there is that traditional you know my father worked in the union and uh, and head of the labor union and that gets passed on down generationally but i think the newer um, I guess children, siblings of that uh, would have um, may not want to uh, work in that in that situation unless they see it as an opportunity. Um, and again, I have to get back to this um, <laughs> this uh, uh, social media thing. It, you know, I really started to take a serious look at that and. You know, does it do what it was originally set out to do, or is it now in a situation where we have to take a serious look at what what is the impact of this thing? Uh, let's just take suicides amongst um, teenagers, um, especially women. It seems to be on the rise um, with young women because you know. It's not just your your little group anymore that you know wants to accept you and enjoys your company and all this. It's it's spread to a larger larger audience, and if it could take only one or two people to insult a woman on her looks or anything like that, and and she just uh, is impacted by it tremendously, it gets depressed. Uh, shuts herself off from her parents and doesn't want to talk about it and um, eventually might even take her life because somebody has rejected her as a friend on Facebook or something else. Um, And so it's leading people to make decisions in their lives, the younger generation that uh, we wouldn't have even thought about back in our day because we didn't have this this uh, type of technology going on. And then, you know, then they get bombarded. I mean, these computers know more about us than we know about ourselves. And yeah. they can use that to uh, target people, uh, you know, for monetary gain, no matter what it is they're trying to sell you. Um it can also impact our own politics. 
uh, in terms of who votes a certain way and, and all, if you have that information in your hand, uh, it's pretty powerful. So I don't know where these younger people, they don't, they don't seem to be able to uh, focus on some of these jobs I think that we're talking about. Uh, I don't even know if they want that to do that kind of job. So I think I think uh, management and labor are going to have a challenge uh, with the newer generations regarding uh, if they want a career in, in the area that their uh, older brothers, sisters had, or their, even their parents had before them. And I think it's a whole okay. new world yeah. out there. Yeah, let me get to some follow-up. Depressed? No, 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 no. You, no, no. You, 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 you've got. You're making up a pretty interesting point. The kind of goes into it is that, you know, you know, I think of, like, take the education side of the equation, is you know, for years we've told people go to college, get a great job, and but we have ignored those things like, uh, you know, community colleges. Uh, or let's say even with unions with their internship programs, they will prepare you for jobs that in many ways will pay you more. And certainly uh, you got a whole group of, I mean, how many people go to college? I mean, like 70% of Americans will not be college graduates. And we seem to have forgotten how to deal with them, educate them and prepare them for the upcoming job. And certainly, you know, you know, like I say, you know, you know, talking with John Hinderacker or the Center of American Experience, and the number of jobs that don't require a college education are out there, but we don't talk about it, we don't deal with it, and we don't educate people, hey, this is an opportunity. I guess I'll put it this way. You know, uh, oh, yeah. Who's I, you know, I, I, over I, the year? Who's more valuable? I, I, I hate to put it this way. Who's more valuable you know, as to an employer, or, or who's more valuable over the long haul? A person who goes and gets a plumbing internship, or somebody who comes out with a there. I got hate to get myself in trouble, but uh, women's studies major. <laughs> I see where you're going. I mean, that. yeah. Well, yeah. I think uh, that, again, I think Larry and I talked about this a while back. Uh, when I grew up in the New York State uh, education, you had a local diploma and a regents diploma. Those that went into the regions uh, tended to go to to college, and those that went into the local degree uh, learned a trade, a uh, technical skill. And uh, that, that kind of disappeared from the curriculum. And I never could figure out why you would take that away, uh, you know, something called shop and, you know, fixing cars yeah. after school and all that kind of thing. Um, why not offer it? Because not everybody wants to go to college. It doesn't mean they're not bright people or anything. It's just something they're not predisposed to want to do. And I think I mentioned to Larry last time, too, I have no, no, I do not know why the Appalachian Regional Commission disappeared as a program the way it used to be. Mm-hmm which targeted yeah. um, rural areas and offered well, you, know, you, yeah, you, you bring up shop because I would never take a shop class. And, and oh, I wasn't very okay. good at it. But, yeah, I wasn't But either, it was but one I of those. <laughs> but, but, it was, but, it was, but it was worth looking at because you learned how to use a lathe. You learned how to use these equipment. 
You know, I could remember yeah. making a bowl. You know, it, it wasn't exactly, you know, as my teacher said, you know, it doesn't exactly yeah. look like the original design, but it's still a bowl. <laughs> yeah. That's what yeah. I told him. I said, it's still well, a bowl. And besides, I'm on the track team and you're the track coach. you got to give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know it. But, I know it got me not to want to do uh, – the blue collar labor stuff. Although I didn't, I made good money at it because I had to join a labor and I had to join the Teamsters. But you know, I worked at the AMP food processing plant, and our job—we were college kids, right? But they were paying four dollars and thirty cents an hour back then in nineteen sixty-six, sixty-seven, which was pretty that good means you money. Were making, yeah. Yeah, because the minimum wage then was like dollar. But in order to make that I, money, I had to I had yeah. to unload seven hundred pound pickle barrels, and yeah. and go into the spice thing with a forklift uh, from Madagascar mm. and all over the world. And yeah. Lord knows well, what I'm getting up my nose. Well, yeah, because I, I, I remember one year, you know, I did like I say when I was, uh, I was in between let's say college and you know starting my career. You know, I basically worked as a substitute teacher, but I also did some work with a group called Potomac Temporary, which is manpower. Uh-huh. And I can remember one right. week. The two things I always remember. One, I worked as a factory for a week as the janitor. Right. I was the janitor. And, <laughs> and it was fascinating because, <laughs> because basically, you know, I was, you know, and everybody in there was all blue-collar workers. They were all, you know, machineries. Machinists and my job yeah. was to sweep up for and watching these people work. And boy, I said, God, I, you know, these guys are working pretty hard. And I can remember the second is the second time these people sent me out. I said, Hey, look, we got this guy. They're moving it. I said, It's a mover. You know, they're moving into a house and they need a, another body. And I'm thinking, Okay, why not? And I spent like 14 hours, literally. Uh, well, you know, you know, doing what you're doing, picking up, you know, big heavy, you know. Uh, you know, yeah, you know, big, heavy, you know, slow, you know, you know, couches and this and that and drawers and and afterwards, I'm like, I'm totally exhausted. And these guys are saying, "Hey, let's go get a beer, dude." <laughs> and I'm like, right. not that's, ready to. That's exactly the case. Yeah, and yeah. you know, but, I learned from there. Well, I guess I I don't want this kind of a career, even though the pay was good. I yeah. said, I guess I better. You know, finish my college career and focus on something in that area. But um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's hard work, and but the pay was was decent. And um, you know, back in those days, you, if you came from a larger family, uh, mm-hmm. the parents had already picked up the college tab for your brothers or something. Then you needed walking around money at school and things. So, you know, you went yeah. to those jobs and then you realized, oh boy, I don't want to do this for a living the rest of my life. Yeah. Well, you say, so, yeah, well we're done. We're down to the last two minutes, guys. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> how about final thoughts? Um, well, I say let's see what happens usually in this city for the, uh, um, what do they call it? The, Hundred day honeymoon, <laughs> yeah. and 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 see, Larry, where are the things that we can uh, work on, uh, both parties, and try to move ahead uh, in in the future here, and those things that are yeah. difficult, 
let's see if we can negotiate uh, some compromise on that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess I've been impressed with this conversation because there's a, you know, I'm not going to say, you know, we, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of areas where quite frankly, you, Larry and I are coming to agreements. You know, here's what we need to be looking at. The question is how do you get from point A to point B, but at least we're agreeing on the goal side, side of the equation. Well, absolutely, and I I would, um, you know, we may want to address, too, where the Republican Party is going to go as a party because, um, you know, there's still a lot of supporters of um, President Trump's agenda, but on the other hand, there's there's others inside the Senate that are looking at doing something different, apparently. Well, I'll tell you what, that's a good that's a work, uh, that's a great conversation for us to engage in the future because uh, that's a very be. you bring us a very terrific. yeah. And well, I'll let, I'll let Dr. Larry take care of that. Okay, guys. Well, thanks, thanks for uh, for uh, submitting yourself to our uh, bombard <laughs> here, um, bombarding you with uh, questions. Uh, Matt, we uh, we aren't no, always great. so uh, controversial. <laughs> yeah, and I just wanted to ask you, Larry, why didn't why didn't you just keep the name your name on the show? Why is it called Resistance now? Is there a reason? Well, <clears throat> I uh, decided that I I had uh, changed my changed my ways here a little bit because I had some medical issues that needed to be uh, attended to, and Tom oh. was uh, willing to. Uh, Share the oh, burden wow. with me, and so we decided Great. to do something together. Excellent. No, you both are very good, and uh, love to come back on talk about some other things as we move on down the road here. Yeah. Well, we'll be glad to hear about that because we need it. We need some uh, intelligence from the uh, from the other side. <laughs> well. So maybe, maybe you're headed in the maybe we can get back to the old days <laughs> in the seventies <laughs> when we used to all have dinner or lunch and work out all these problems. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Right. Well you know, we this, could all we, this if we could ever we go to a restaurant. <laughs> yeah, right. We should. No doubt about it. <laughs> okay, guys. We're saying Thank good you. night and God bless America. Yes, sir. And God bless both of you. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.